Well, okay, hold on. Are you okay with that, Darius? Not really. I want it to always happen. Do you? I say I do. But if it would always happen, I feel like... That's a little scary then, because you're going to be held to the same Very standard? Scary, yeah. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. I have a question. Yeah. Can you define the difference between justice and fairness? No, I can't. Fairness on what level? In other words, if we got what we deserved. Yeah, then God would be a fair God, but he's just. Which means, which by, which by definition means that he might not be fair. I'm not trying to pin you in a corner. Can you I'm say just, what again? Which, so are you saying that because God is, is just and not fair, we actually have a chance? Right. Okay. Okay. I can look well, at that's it. just what I heard. Yeah. That's fine. Like doing the same to a group, like what one person gets, everybody else gets. Instead of and like justice would be more like you did this, and this is what happened. Not really as a group, but as an individual. Like, so we could say that justice is consequences. I think so. You're saying that fairness is like equality. I think that's how I took it. So that's what I wasn't sure. I don't want to hear more on this. I just wanted to put it out there. So is God, is God just? <clears throat> Sorry, Melody. Go ahead. You can keep going with your conversation. I mean, I wasn't saying that to Katie. I was just <laughs> didn't want to interrupt. Uh, is God just? Have you ever felt anger at something bad that happened and thought of all the nice ways that God could make that situation right and then felt guilty for thinking that way? Why do you feel guilty? Tell me. Because I guess if it involves another person, you're ultimately wishing ill will on them. To a certain extent, maybe. And you feel guilty about that? And you feel guilty. Okay. Is that where you're going with it, Bradley? I don't know. <laughs> well, there's something about this also that just like makes you feel really selfish. Like, you know, I just want it just for my pleasure. I'm just like, because I feel bad, I want that person to feel bad or whatever. Because you feel like the balance is unequal. Yeah. Like you were wrong and they weren't. And so it'd be better if they felt, if they had some kind of consequences that brought them down. And you feel bad for feeling that way, badly. It kind of depends what the situation is. That's kind of hard for me to picture. Oh, okay. I can give you some situations if you want. I mean, we can go anywhere from, from something really petty to um, feeling anger that uh, 
somebody was killed or somebody was hurt or somebody was abused in a way that was that they were being taken advantage of and you're like I wish this would happen and justice would would you know be and be uh, played out in the situation is that a good thing to feel you New Testament Christians you <laughs> I'm not trying to trap you um, I'm just, I'm, I'm totally fine with exploring this idea of judgment and justice. And here's why. Is God just? Okay, so we can establish that. You bear the image of God. When you are angry at an atrocity that is committed, is that feeling from God or from Satan? Paul talks about um, righteous anger, so I think in some ways you can be angry um, in a good way, but... I think most times it's probably selfish. Okay. Sure, sure. Yeah, we can we can talk about how it plays out actually in itself later. I'm I'm talking about strictly the emotion. So a bad thing happens, somebody physically abuses a, a four year old. Is it good to be angry? Yes. Okay. Because God put that feeling in you. Could we say that? So when you're angry at injustice, you're displaying part of the image of God. Does that make sense? If God's image is not in you, then you don't care anymore. And if you would be just totally fine with having with the Holocaust happening, and that didn't bother you in the least, that wouldn't make you a nice forgiving person that would make you a monster because you could see something like that that happened and it doesn't matter you don't care does that make sense now before I expound on, on all that too much that's, weird. that's what the next half hour is for I suppose um, should justice always happen all the time Would you like for that to be the case? No? Would you like a God who is just and merciful? Would you? How merciful? Do you have a good place to draw the line? You see what I'm you see what I'm asking? So if we have just justice, and I'll I'll write this up here for you because it maybe helps us to visualize it. This is probably the one that doesn't work. It sure is. Throw it away. <laughs> if we could ever make our way to the trash can anyway. <laughs> I can tell Maria to order some more. A permanent marker in my office. But, uh, anyway, okay. 
So, so we'll, we'll imagine it together nicely. So you have mercy on this side and justice on this side. Do you want a God who is all merciful? Why not? There'd never be justice. Okay. Do you want a God who is all justice? Probably for the same reason, right? Because then there would never be any mercy and there would be no chance for anybody. So where exactly in the middle, or what mix of mercy and justice would you like for God to have? Because sometimes we're happy with God being just. We're okay with God being just, but really glad that he chose to show mercy, especially in our situation. And there's other times where we're okay with God being a merciful God, but we really wish that justice would happen in whatever situation we're talking about at the moment. Because what's happening isn't right, and it's not getting fixed, and where's God's justice in all of this? Does that make sense? Do those questions make sense? And so we wrestle like with what's going on in between the two, and sometimes we see God all the way over here on the side of mercy, or that's at least how that's a, how it looks to us. We see God all the way on the merciful side, and we're like, can't we just get some things fixed? And then the other, the next time, you see God all the way over here on the justice side, and you're like, really, God, did you have to be that harsh? And so. What I want to talk about tonight, and what I think the story of Sodom is, is about, at least in part, is, is, is Abraham wrestling with a question, and we're going to get to that question later. Abraham wrestling with a question about God, and God's response to that. But the story doesn't actually end there. We're going to end up in the book of Matthew, probably not tonight. But Anyway, so I'm going to read some verses for you. Uh, we've probably read them here in class before from Genesis 6. This is talking about the flood. So bear with me for a moment. God and judgment. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was full of violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood, room shalt thou make in the ark, and thou shalt pitch it within it without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make of it. Make it of. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, yada, yada. And behold, I, even I, do bring in blood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven. And everything that is in the earth shall die. Sometimes I think we get this idea that sin, if we're going to define sin, what, how do we, by what definition do we use? Well, one of the most common def definitions in the world today, at least in the Western world, is the Ten Commandments. You go to the Supreme Court building today, you will see a carving, a motif, of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments. It's the foundation of many judicial systems throughout the history of the world, or the, at least the ideas that are put forward in the Ten Commandments. Uh, but apparently God has another definition for sin, and it travels all the way back into the time of Genesis. In Genesis 6, when God comes to Noah and says, the earth is so bad off, that I'm going to destroy it with a flood. We've, we've talked about some of that before, but I wanted to go back and kind of start there. <clears throat> we could 
we could ask the question, was that good or bad? Did God do rightly by judging the earth with the flood? But I've, I've sort of emphasized this point that that God sees that man is still wicked after the flood, or that his heart is still turned toward wickedness, and he said, I'm still going to dwell with them. I'm still going to have my presence dwell on earth, even though man is wicked, even though the thoughts of his heart are only even continually, I'm still going to stick with them. I'm going to treat them in a different way from now on. Well, different way, I suppose. So Genesis 18, I don't know how many of you read this, but I'm going to read a few verses for you. So last time we talked about Abraham sitting in the door of his tent and he sees the three men coming and he lays out this massive feast for them. And then immediately following that, these men, or these three men, I believe it's two angels and and uh, I think the third is described as the Lord. Yeah, verse 13 calls him the Lord. Somewhere along the line, uh, Abraham realizes what has happened. And just to give you a quick side note here, the Lord tells Abraham that a year from now, this time next year, Sarah is going to have a son. What does Sarah do? <laughs> the same thing you would do if, if your grandma told you. <laughs> Guess what? God told me I'm going to have a son next year. And you would call out and view and ask, do they have any openings? <laughs> and Sarah laughed. Very, very off-the-cuff side note here. Does anybody know what Isaac's name means? Isaac means laugh. Or laughter. Or I will laugh. Ishmael also means is a form of laughter, which is what Hagar named her son Ishmael, Abraham's other son. And the uh, if you look at the entomology of those two words, uh, Ishmael means basically Aha, I got what I wanted. Isaac means I will laugh, meaning it's a future context, meaning that I will, I will be victorious in the future. And the way that the ancient Hebrew reads, when Sarah laughed, and I believe there's a time that Abraham laughs also, uh, prior to this time, the Lord says, Abraham, Sarah's going to have a son. And Abraham says, Ha! That's how you're doing it? It's more like, the incredulous laugh. Like, I wonder what the neighbors are going to say. It's not a laugh of disbelief as much as it is, boy, God sure got a sense of humor. I see how he's going to do it now. Does that make sense? So there's a little bit of a difference there. Anyway, um, total side note. But uh, picking up the story in verse 16. So they have the meal together. Genesis 18, 16. And the men rose up from thence and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, there's those two words, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done according, altogether according to the cry of it which is coming to me, and if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom. So Abraham is told two things by God, two observations that God has about the sin or about what is happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. Two phrases. He said their cry is very great and their sin is very grievous. 
The word cry is tzedakah. It's closely matched with another Hebrew word, tzedakah. They mean two completely different things. Tzedakah is the Hebrew word for righteousness. Tzedakah is the Hebrew word for a shriek. And it is said in the Old Testament that, let's see if I can explain this correctly, the word tzedakah is used in conjunction with God's wrath on the earth. And what I mean by that is this. Uh, there's basically two places where this word is used. It's used either when someone is so oppressed that they have no other, nothing left but to just cry out in pain. It's the same word that's used in Exodus chapters 2 and 3 when the Hebrews groaned under the burden of their taskmasters in Egypt and it says God heard their cry. The idea is given that when somebody on earth utters a cry of that magnitude that it reaches up to heaven and God hears it and God acts. The other time that you see this word te'akah being used is when God is pouring out his judgment, especially on the children of Israel, and basically tells them, you're going to cry te'akah, and I'm not going to worry about it. Because the judgment that you're experiencing is coming from me. But it's a word of action. And you wouldn't just, you wouldn't just say it. It's the kind of thing where you fall on your knees and tear your cloak or your robe and like groan out in anguish. That's what's happening here with, with the word se'akah. Now the word kabad in, uh, in Hebrew is just something that means very burdensome. So God says that I have heard the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's reached to heaven. And I'm going to go see what's going on. And if it's as bad as, as, as I'm hearing, I'm going to do something about it. I ask the question, is this good or bad? Would you like for God to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Do you think God was just in destroying Sodom and Gomorrah? As you look at the story of what goes on in Genesis 19, when the two angels come into the city and what they, what they want to do to them, what they want to do to Lot, you think they deserve it? Would you be happy if God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, here's the catch. That depends on whether or not you actually know somebody that's living there. Does that make sense? So the, the whole kidnapping situation in Haiti is on everybody's mind right now, Westerns especially. How do you take care of that? I have a solution. I don't have a solution. It's not a solution. But imagine the United States government saying, you know what? We have a real problem with kidnappings in Haiti. They're kidnapping our citizens. We're going to call up a fleet of bombers, load them up with hydrogen bombs, and flatten Haiti to the ground. That should take care of the kidnappings, right? You like that? No. Not in the least. I think that Abraham runs into the same issue here. It just so happens that he does know somebody in Sodom. Some 20 years earlier to the, or prior to this, I'm sure you all know the story well, Abraham and Lot's herdsmen are having strife. They separate. Abraham takes, takes the plains, basically, and Lot heads down towards Sodom. Turns out to be a bit of a burden for Abraham. Lot was later captured in a raid. Abraham has to go rescue him. And now we find out that Abraham is afraid that Lot will be destroyed in the judgment of Sodom. Now, you could say that if Lot is destroyed in the judgment of Sodom, it's his own fault. And that's possible. Maybe it is. But let's read 
let's read through some of this. So the men turned their faces, this is Genesis 18:22. now, the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou destroy the righteous with the wicked? For adventure there be 15, 50 righteous within the city. Wilt thou, wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for 50 righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of the earth do right? And that's the question, I think, of the problem of Sodom and Gomorrah. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is Abraham's quote here, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Do you trust God to judge righteously? Yes. Then you're okay with the flood? You're okay with all of the children that died in Sodom and Gomorrah and the other three cities of the plain? Are you? I'm not saying you shouldn't be. But if we think that God always judges righteously... Okay, so here's where, here's where things start to fall apart then. Does God judge righteously by his account or by ours? You understand what I'm saying? That seems to be the question. But Abraham is putting something to God here when he asks, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? In other words, he's willing to step in front of God, essentially, and say, Wait a second, God... You're going to go destroy those people because Abraham knows what Lot's going to find, what, what, what the angels are going to go find out in Sodom. He is, I don't think he has, there's not a doubt in his mind because he starts out with 50 righteous people, right? And whittles him all the way down to 10. And I don't think Abraham was very comforted when he went home and went to bed that night. Like he knew what was coming. What exactly was Sodom and Gomorrah or were Sodom and Gomorrah in the cities of the plain involved in? Well, I'll, I'm going to, Back off that quote, that that for just a second. How many, of, how many, how many of you are familiar with the term collateral damage? What is it? Somebody tell me. So, like in war, they like are trying to destroy some enemies. If they like destroy some villagers or something in the process, and then children, that's just collateral. Damage. They call it collateral damage. It's a a neat, a nice, neat little term for, oops. You see what I'm saying? And, and honestly, when something happens in Baghdad, Iraq, and, um, you know, like that airstrike here a couple of years ago that killed the Iranian general Qasem Soleimani, like, I'm sure there was a few people there in that car who were not nearly as violent of a person as he was. We, would, we could call them collateral damage. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, sorry about that, but we got the guy we wanted. So... Back in 2003, when the United States went to war in Iraq, there was a group <clears throat> started a website, and they named it the Iraqi Body Count. And they documented for the last, they've documented basically from 20, 2003 to 2018, um, but you can still go on their website today and find up-to-date up information. The Iraqi Body Count website tracked documented civilian deaths in the war in Afghanistan. This is not, you know, two soldiers saying that uh, we went into this house, we killed a couple of Iraqi soldiers and uh, accidentally hit an old man. It's like, no, these are documented deaths, they, you know, reports they get from hospitals, from news sources, things like that. Excuse me. Anybody want to take a guess at how many civilians collateral damage died in the Iraqi war? 
somewhere between 180 and 202,000. Here's a map of Virginia. That is the equivalent of Roanoke, Charlottesville, and Harrisonburg wiped off the map. Does that feel a little different? Now imagine the U.S. generals coming to uh, coming to uh, you know President Biden and saying, you know what, we've got a real problem with those militia people down there in Virginia. We think they coordinated a terrorist attack against Washington D.C. And we're going to go take care of the problem. Uh, but I'm sorry to tell you, President Biden, it's likely that the cities of Roanoke, Charlottesville, and Harrisonburg will have to be carpet bombed in order to flush out all of the militants. Be okay with that? But that's what happened in Iraq over the course of approximately 15 years. Oh, yeah, that doesn't count the other about 80,000 military personnel from both sides of the conflict that gave their lives as well. It's a lot of death over weapons of mass destruction that didn't exist. It's another issue, I suppose. But Abraham asks a, legit, a, a legitimate question. Will not the Lord of all the earth do right? And that's the question that we ask, especially when we see injustice happening, when we see collateral damage. And I didn't, I haven't been to Iraq. I have family members that have been there. Frida has a good friend. She was at our wedding. Uh, that is a physician, physician's assistant that was working over there in Mosul area back in 2016, 2017, and literally had a mental breakdown because you can only work on bombed up children so long before you just snap. And so we can ask these questions and wrestle with them and things like that, but when you really get down into the situation, when you're the one with a brother or sister being held by kidnappers in Haiti, then you really start feeling those questions within you. Like, is God really just? Is God really right? Does he really have everything under control? The sin of Sodom. Okay, so, so does God do collateral damage? Well, you can look back at your reading in Genesis 19, and you can see that the angels found, well, it's debatable whether or not they even found anybody righteous. Lot and his daughters, two of his single daughters, managed to be saved. But beyond that, it doesn't seem like uh, there was anybody else that was worth saving. So let's look at the story just a moment here in Genesis 19. And there came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night. Wash your feet, and ye shall rise up early and go on your way. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. And he pressed them upon them greatly, and they turned in unto him, and entered into his house, and made them a feast. And uh, basically showed them some hospitality there. Now, an interesting thing about a gate of a city, it's where the business transactions happen for the day. If you were spying and selling pieces of land, if you had a cause that needed to be pled before the judge, that's sort of like the, the city center. That's where those sort of things happen. This is not the middle of the day. The Bible, Genesis 19, specifically tells us that the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was there. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with the story. Lot, they, the, the two men say, now we're fine, we're good, we can take care of ourselves out here, and 
Lot says, uh, no, you're coming with me. And it actually turns out there's a pretty good reason Lot wanted them to come with him. I think Lot was at the city gate at even, waiting for people like this. Now, what exactly was the problem of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, Scripture gives us a few, a few, um, a few hints. Um, about the time of Christ, it began to be more widely circulated in the Hebrew or in the Jewish world that the sin of Sodom was homosexuality, and that was certainly present here. But up to that point, that's not necessarily how it was seen. Um, Ezekiel, I believe it is, uh, talks about the sin of Sodom being that they had abundance of wealth and they had idleness and free time and all of those things and refused to take care of the poor people among them. If you go to extra-biblical sources, uh, specifically the book of Jasher, which is not canonized, but it's still an ancient book uh, that mirrors a, lot of the, uh, a good bit of the Old Testament, the book of Jasher tells a few stories about Sodom. <clears throat> There's a story that uh, Abraham's servant Eliezer went to Sodom one day on behalf of Abraham, and he sees a man beating up a beggar that was in the street. And Eliezer runs up to them and, and you know, pushes the fight away. And the guy picks up a rock and throws it at Eliezer and hits him in the head and causes him to, to bleed rather profusely. And the man tells Eliezer, hey, buddy, you owe me some money for getting that bad blood out of your system. You're right, it doesn't make sense. And Eliezer says, excuse me? And the guy's like, yeah, that's how it is here in Sodom. If you make me go to the bother of throwing a rock at you and it hits you, you owe me some money. And so the guy takes Eliezer before the judge, and, and uh, Eliezer's like, look, this guy threw a rock at me, he cut my head open, and now he wants me to pay him for you know, the favor of doing that. And the judge says, yep, sorry, Eliezer, that's how things are here. And the story ends with Eliezer picking up a rock and throwing it at the judge and hitting him in the head. <laughs> <laughs> Going. <laughs> and then telling the judge that he owes the other guy his money. <laughs> I think Emmy would like to live there. <laughs> That's one story. Yes, I know that sounds comical, but actually what it's portraying is the, the fact that the entire justice system was turned on its head. Another story out of the book of Jasher is that there was a, uh, one of the ways that they would treat beggars unsuspecting beggars who came to the, to the town of Sodom or to the city of Sodom is when the people when the when a beggar would come into the city streets the people would give him money or her money probably him they would give the beggar money and then by mutual pact refuse to sell anything to the person and so they would basically provide them with what they needed financially and the beggar would be happy because now he has a means to provide for himself but when he actually went to buy something nobody would accept his money and they would literally starve to death there in the city of Sodom. And um, there's, a, there's, there's two different stories that go along with that. One is that there was a beggar that was there that was starving that wouldn't die. And the people of the town couldn't figure out, like, nobody's feeding this person. They don't have any money, that, or at least they don't have any way of buying anything. We're waiting for this beggar to die, and they're just not dying. And so they actually set, sent three men to watch the beggar to see if they could figure out who's feeding this person. And one of Lot's daughters would, uh, obviously not one of the ones in the story here, would uh, hide bread in her water pitcher when she went out to get water. And as she was coming back through, she would sneak the bread out of her water pitcher and give it to the, uh, to the beggar. And when the people of the city found out what was happening, they burned her alive. 
Another story out of the, uh, because that, because they would kill people who spoiled their fun they were having with the poor people in their town. Another story is of a, of a woman who was feeding a beggar, and they stripped her, covered her in honey, and set a beehive on her, and she was stung to death. Now, those are extra-biblical accounts, but according to the book of Jasher, the, or no, that's in the book of, sorry, the beehive story happened in, in, in another city nearby, the city of Adma. Anyway, but uh, the story goes in the book of Jasher that I think it was the, the lady that was killed by bees. Her cry at death is what ascended to God. And he heard that and finally said, that's enough. I'm going to go down and have a look at what's going on. So we're not talking about New York City. We're talking about a place that was extremely corrupt, wicked to the point where they were just utterly depraved. And Lot was living here, by the way, very reluctant to leave when the time finally came. You happy with God's judgment on Sodom? If all of those stories are true, do you accept that God judged Sodom? What if God didn't judge Sodom for 50 years after these things started? What about all the time that this was happening that God didn't do anything? Two quick stories for you, if I can. And then, uh, and then we'll wrap it up for the night. This judgment always happened. Two, uh, two examples from the Old Testament. This is from Exodus chapter 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. The seventh day is the Sabbath of this is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, for thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea, and all that in them is and rested on the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Did you get the point of that? Don't work on the Sabbath, right? Ten Commandments, right there. Not that difficult to understand. Numbers chapter 15. And while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man that gathered sticks upon the Sabbath day. And they, and they that found him gathering sticks brought him unto Moses and Aaron, and unto all the congregation. And they put him in war, because it was not declared what should be done to him. And the Lord said unto Moses, The man shall be surely put to death. All of the congregation shall stone him with stones without the camp. And all the congregation brought him without the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died as the Lord commanded them, as the Lord commanded Moses. God set a definition for sin to Israel. This man went and picked up sticks on the Sabbath day, and God said, kill him. You good with that? I'm not. I'm not really by my standards. Another story few verses from uh, Exodus and Leviticus. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Leviticus 18. Moreover, thou shalt not lie carnally with thy neighbor's wife to defile thyself with her. Plain enough? Understand what's being written? Okay. Second Samuel. And it came to pass in an eventide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. From the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. 
And David sent and inquired after the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. Is it clear what David did? Okay. David committed two sins in the uh, in his affair with Bathsheba. The first one was that he committed adultery. The second is that he committed murder when he had Uriah the Hittite killed. Who paid for the sin of David? What was the uh, what was the uh, the uh, punishment for adultery according to the law of Moses? Does anyone know? Stoning. Who died as a result of David's sin with Bathsheba? Do you know? The child? The baby. You okay with that? Which is worse, breaking the Sabbath or committing adultery? See where I'm going with this? We would all say that the guy breaking the Sabbath should have been told nicely not to do that again, and we'll see what he does next week when Sabbath rolls around. But he was killed. And David commits two of the worst sins on the naughty list from the Old Testament. And he doesn't get away scot-free. I recognize that. There is judgment that followed his house as a result of that. But ultimately... The child died, and David and Bathsheba both lived. She lived long enough to raise up the next king of Israel. Does God's judgment ever miss anybody? Because it sure seems like something went askew with these two stories. That's a really mean place to end a session. But you'll have to come back next week for the rest of it. When are you having it next week? Huh? When are you having it next week? Tuesday. Tuesday, okay, good. You ain't camping next weekend? <laughs> I think it's Tuesday. You got the class next Tuesday. Anyway, um, yeah, I do think I'm going to stop there. It's, it's not nice, but there's just, there's simply too much too much material to try to to try to knock out the rest of tonight. But I want you to think about those things. We have we have a concept of justice that comes from God. And yet with God's idea of justice and our idea of justice don't line up. We start really, really having questions about God's justice. I hope to be able to explain some of that to you next week. Even though at the end of the day, I, I don't have a lot of good answers for you. I can, I can tell you some things that Jesus told us. I can, I can show you how some of this played out. But when Abraham had the question, shall not the judge of, the, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It was a legitimate question. And it's one that we struggle with. So God bless you as we think about that. If you think about it for the next week. And... Uh, Pick it up again on Tuesday. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being with us tonight. 
Thank you that definition lies with you about our hearts. Thank you that you are God and uh, we are your people. Lord, I pray a special blessing tonight on our brothers and sisters in Haiti for feeling the separation and loss from captivity. Pray for their families, bless them especially. Peace for each one that is involved. Lord, that all would feel your hand of provision, your hand of protection around them. Pray that all would be safely and healthily reunited with your families. Pray for peace and negotiation talks. Pray that your angels be there, protecting your spirit and heaven's way. We bless you in Jesus' name.